0: Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects, and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello, and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks, and I'm head of external relations in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for ACOM. Today, we're focusing on making the most of digital, specifically how to digitally transform a project. What are the drivers for digital transformation? What are the issues? And how do we make the most of the tools available? To hopefully help me answer these questions and to discuss the issues surrounding them, I am joined by two guests. My first guest is Alistair Mellon, Alistair is an expert in the design, master planning and construction of large-scale, multi-building residential-led mixed-use schemes. Uh, currently on a bit of a busman's holiday, redeveloping his own house. In his previous role as Director of Development and Delivery at Seller, he was responsible for the design, planning and construction of more than 5 million square feet of residential, commercial and mixed-use schemes across London. Welcome, Alistair. Thank you. Uh, My second guest is from ACOM's Architecture Service. Director of Technical Practice, Dale Sinclair, is passionate about developing interdisciplinary and innovative design processes. He is currently the Royal Institute of British Architects, Ambassador for Collaboration and Technical, the Construction Industry Council's Building Information Modelling, BIM, champion, and regularly speaks on that topic, Design for Manufacturer and Assembly, digital innovation, and the future of the built environment. Welcome, Dale. Thank you very much. So, Dale, uh, seeing as you're on home turf, we'll start with you. How have digital tools such as BIM changed the way that we work in the built environment at a very high level?
1: At the highest of levels, I think what BIM has really done is forced us as designers to move into a 3 d environment and the whole notion of the federated model and the common data environment really helped to move us along in terms of how we collaborate as a design team. I think what we're now seeing is BIM hitting its limitations, because although it has done some great things, we're not really seeing designs being done faster. I'm not sure that we're necessarily producing better information, and we're certainly not Pushing the the paradigm that we had before, you know, the whole two D paradigm. Uh, and I think what we do see is a lot of contracts framed around two D information. So, so for me, the crucial thing is to take BIM to its next level, which is getting the whole project team into a wholly three D environment where we can really drive value from the data that sits inside our models. Clearly, there are a lot of tools available. And this, is
0: both from both of you, Dale and Alistair, how do we choose the right tools for the for the job in hand, and how do we make sure that we're not just using digital tools for the sake of digital?
1: In terms of the the work that my team are doing, uh, I think. Our starting point is not really the tools. Our starting point is what is it we're trying to transform. So so for example when we look at construction information we like to talk to the suppliers we're really keen to know what information would allow them to work more effectively so pushing much deeper into that process. So really our starting point is you know it's normal for us, us to be the lead designer on projects so we're trying to figure out what workflow would make the whole design team work more effectively. So that's our starting point but having said that we do have some key technology partners and their software is instrumental to what we do. So we we have to work around that. But for example, right now, our focus is on how we converge manufacturing and construction. So we're working with Autodesk to look at how we can better use their tools and try and transform our deliverables into the future.
2: Yeah, um, my perspective coming from the development side, although I started in civil engineering, I've been in development now 25 years. So I, I look at it from a point of view of what is it we're trying to deliver. I'm less interested in the specifics of the tools per se, and more interested in how they help me to achieve the desired outcome. And to Dale's point, what we see today is, I think, oftentimes we're in the situation where we're trying to apply the new technologies to an existing uh, contractual set of arrangements. Those by, there are certain drivers. Uh, of people in in the process who are innately conservative. I would say probably the single most conservative group are the financiers. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to park risk well away from the developer and encouraging the developer to get design and build contract or or to allocate that risk to a contractor. And in, in many ways, that's flying in the face of what would really reduce risk, which is actually embracing it, getting into the details and using the ability of these tools to. So, for example, forcing a developer to sit down and write an, a very detailed brief, which forces them to answer the questions that inevitably have to get answered and are best answered by the developer and his and it's lead designer. But when you've got the pressures of as soon as you have achieved a planning consent, there's a rush to get the the design packaged up so that it can be put out to tender. And the contractors, I think, have been, I think, slow to disintermediate themselves because if if you can sit with a lead designer and you can select finished items from a manufacturer's catalogue and build it directly into your BIM model, then entire swathes of the supply chain no longer serve much purpose. And if you can then deliver that information directly into the hands of the workers so that when barcoded elements of the job arrive on the job, they can be put on level 10, flat 2, room 3, bathroom cabinet, and that can be just fitted because the guy's got a handheld supercomputer. The ability to do that, nobody has yet created the contractual framework that facilitates and multiplies the capability of the tools that exist today. There is no technical innovation that we need to do to do that. What's preventing us is the innate conservatism of the system and the entrenched nature of the supply chain. So, for example... If we're ordering a kitchen, then oftentimes that kitchen is coming from a wholesaler to the subcontractor, and that will go back to a manufacturer who is actually taking manufactured goods from a super manufacturer somewhere in northern Italy. So you, you, you're you're dealing with multiple different markups of the same product, and you're trying to graft that any technology you're trying to graft onto a, basically a bloated system when the technology should be used to erase. Effectively, non non-required people in the supply chain, and those those could be those people could be deployed to do something more useful. So that's how I come at it from a, a development point of view, and I think there are great examples of how that is working in practice today. Uh, we work with a Canadian outfit called KitSpace, and they work with an Italian supplier, fruentalia They have a six million square foot joinery plant in northern Italy, producing 140. Forty-foot containers a day of flat-packed and volumetric kitchen can be turned out of the factory in a matter of two to three weeks from sign-off of a drawing using a BIM model. And to to Dale's point again, you use the example of AutoCAD. I think they use a Dassault system, and having a BIM that can a BIM model that can interface directly with a manufacturing software package that that gets you huge economies. Um, we're we're seeing on on jobs that we have bid where we've had five conventional kitchen contractors mm-hmm. bid the job, that these, these characters have come in and bid 60% less than the low bidder. Mm. Uh, and they're able to deliver to a quality. And because they are, we're going right back to the root of where this material is being produced the economies that we're able to generate. And I think if we could, we need as an as an industry to get much, much closer to the root and to the original equipment
1: manufacturers if we're to exploit the, the potential of these tools. I would agree with that, Alistair. I mean, what, what we certainly see is that we've had a number of conversations with clients recently saying well we we can now tell you how many boxes of screws stored or we we can move to bills of materials where we can actually figure out the quantities of of drywall sheeting yet no one seems to want that information so I, I would definitely agree that for us the biggest blocker to innovation is procurement and how we can better connect us as designers to the supply chain and certainly the clients that have commissioned us recently to work with their supply chain allows us to build a digital library right from the outset using manufacturer information so so in a sense we're using the shop drawings to create the design and that takes all the waste out as we move into construction yeah, the I points that does. alistair's making
0: obviously you're talking now about sort, of, sort of streamlining some processes i imagine there is some reluctance and with some people because they're worried about their own jobs and their own function
2: i i don't think that they see it as strategically as that it's just that this is the way it's always been done mm. and and, and you, i can't overemphasise as a developer If you're trying to raise finance and you're trying to explain to a banker who's just trying to make sure that you've offset the risk so that he doesn't end up holding the baby, if you say innovation, he hears risk. Uh, he doesn't understand that by not innovating, we're actually lumped with uh, a whole bunch of risks that we are very well ill-equipped to manage, and we just end up pouring people into the equation, and then that just becomes a, you know, a morass of emails and you know all of the sort, of, all the all the electronic. Noise. We can't we can't separate the signal from the noise. This is this is the issue. So we don't need contractors. What we need is assemblers. We need people to assemble the component parts that can be defined very very clearly now at the early early stage. But that also requires developers to be more professional. Many many developers in this town, and I'm sure it's the same all over the world. They're just not particularly good clients. They don't have a brief. They don't have a clear idea, and they're they're ill equipped to explain precisely in ways that tie in with their appraisal what it is that they want from their architects. And I think there's a professionalization of development that's required. But the first, I think there is a huge opportunity for somebody to create an assembler as opposed to a general contractor. It would have different types of people. It would have an absolutely professional uh, logistics core bolted onto it FedEx style or Amazon style. Uh, Because the way in which we do logistics on site today is you've got 15 carpenters upstairs fitting joinery and all of a sudden Charlie shouts, there's been a delivery. You stop the productive work of a guy you're paying £400 a day and you make him into a £100 a day labourer for the next four hours while he waits for the hoist. And the whole thing is a shambles. It could be completely professionalised. If you go to a sort of first principles process, if you look at Tesla, I think it's a great example, there's a thing uh, Tesla have made, called a super bottle. And uh, what they figured out is, well, we're heating parts of the engine and we're cooling other parts of the cabin. And all of these are entirely separate systems with entirely separate supply chains. And those suppliers of those existing air conditioning systems and cooling systems simply never talk to each other. Mm. They just want to make a better air conditioner or a better engine cooling system. Tesla have said, if we just had one bottle that could have hot and cold water in it, then we could cool from the same system. You're taking vast amounts of time and energy and waste out of the process. But they're, they're coming to the whole party fresh and being able to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes to say, w- why wouldn't we do this?
0: And you talk about the fresh set of eyes. I mean, is that one of the key issues that we've got here, is is integrating these digital tools into what is a centuries-old process yeah
2: because it is a transformative tool data is the transformative piece and we eventually I suppose if we wait 20 years and artificial intelligence can extract data from unstructured data so they can read you know drawings and specifications and figure it all out for us then yeah but I don't think that is the solution (laughs) Because we're pretty redundant at that point.
1: And a lot of people will say, well, why is construction not more like the car industry? And uh, I think that's a very simplistic comment because I think for me, you need to go a bit deeper into that whole question uh, because cars use totally different materials. They use plastics, they use metals, they use very sophisticated fixings. They're they're small in their nature. They don't need to respond to historic environments. They don't need foundations that need to go into different kind of subsoils. So it's not a very good analogy but what i would say is that i think construction has had lots of innovation it's just happened over thousands of years I mean, if you look at the clay tiles that the romans used i mean it's they're fundamentally we're no different today but that's my point buildings use timber they use clay they use gypsum they use natural materials products like drywall for example i mean that is an incredibly cheap product and uh, I was uh, visited a plasterboard uh, factory early in the year, and it just amazed me at how efficient the process was for making that material. And it's really hard to see how you can come up with solutions that are more cost-effective, because construction has had that optimization over a long period of time. But obviously, we are doing uh, modular Acom. We've been doing fabrication drawings, really looking at the process of how we can work more efficiently with the architects. But certainly what what I see is a gap just now because we want to make larger products. So we're working with a number of our clients just now, like Heathrow, trying to figure out how can they build their buildings much more effectively. I think modular is just one solution. I think what we need to do is reimagine some of the products that we use. So, for example, if the biggest thing I can buy is a tap or a sink, then I'm... I'm dragging myself back into construction so we want bigger products that can come to say and just be as Alistair said be assembled
2: I definitely agree with that I mean I I think modular has its uses but there are, you know if you need a large span building then it's not going to be a modular building so my own personal perspective on this is we need to I don't think you were criticizing the the lessons we can learn from the car industry no. so no. much as they're not directly analogous but one thing I think that is really clear to me is the way a car is assembled out of sub assemblies so you've got significant chunks so if you ever watch a youtube video of a modern car factory a robot arm lifts the whole of the fascia and that fascia comes from another factory and it's specifically designed for that specific model for the specific customer and it has the air conditioning the av the it the steering column and all of the electronics in a single piece with uh, plugs for the loom, the electrical loom to be directly plugged into. The robot arm lifts it and it clips it into two clips on on the chassis and it is done. So to me, whilst I'm not convinced that modular is the... Overall generic answer, I think it definitely has its place, so a certain product sets, hotels, student accommodation, resi to a certain extent that it really is helpful for. But if you're doing a complex, unusual building, we need to get to the point where we have sub-assemblies that we can wheel in, boxed up with barcodes, taken by a professional logistics team to exactly the right place using all of the right tools through demarcated routes and we can reorder the way in which we do things. So, for example, one of the things we've done, just off off my own bat, with an electrical uh, outlet in, uh, in the northeast, we've made an electrical loom for a two-bedroom apartment. The hypothesis being. You wouldn't wire a car in situ on a track. You would get a a loom that comes out of a box with a barcode for that specific car. In the same way, if you know what the apartment is like, you can clip the loom to the soffit of the concrete and dangle the cables around and build a drywall around it. So there's no first fix, second fix, there's no noggins, there's no cutting through the plasterboard. It's all done in a single piece. It would take three to four weeks out of a typical cycle time for an apartment, yeah. which if you go to a contractor in town today, they'll tell you is 18 weeks. I think it can be done in five with those kind of innovations. So something that you and yeah. Dale are very, you're very experts at now is prefabricated uh, utility cupboards. And that would be an example where you've, you've nailed down the volume of that piece to, to the mill. And you can wheel that in. Similarly, the toilet pods, the bathroom pods. So if you think of a cladding, a unitized cladding system, it's essentially a sub-assembly. And I, I think the way forward for us is to focus on building relationships with manufacturers who can create these sub-assemblies. So the whole process on site is much more click and go. Rather than the, the the sort of mud pie <laughs> mm. approach that we that we take on on sites today,
0: is there a danger with with all of this you know increased efficiency, efficient processes and automation that everything starts to look a bit samey and there's a, a lack of choice?
2: I would actually argue that if we can really get the decisions made, I think actually designs get dumbed down in the supply chain more often than they get elevated uh, and, and I think that 's why you see a lot of the signature architects don 't want to embrace you know this design and build culture so I, I would say the more that you can put the decision into the hands of the client and the lead designer at the earliest possible stage and protect that from being diluted by virtue of your bypassing huge swathes of an existing supply chain but somebody 's going to have to convince the financiers that this is actually it 's only by embracing risk and getting into the process taking it apart, seeing where the waste is, that, that you're actually going to get lower, more reliable out prices with, with with better quality.
1: My response to that would be, design is becoming more complex, we've got more issues that we need to get on top of, we've got the sustainability, circular economy, we've got to start facing the world of manufacturing, and uh, what that means is there's a lot for people to learn, and, you know i'm currently the lead designer on uh, a new facility for murfield's eye hospital in ucl and certainly what i'm seeing on that is the complexity of the process is such that you know, it's easy to lose focus in the, the things that matter on a project. And I, and I think there is a need to try and find the things that can help make the design process easier. So I, I certainly don't see it as standardization. I, I see it as about freeing up a lot of the many decisions we make. So, for example, we, we figured out that it, it takes 150 decisions to design a staircase. And what we do is we make those decisions individually on every single project that is an incredibly inefficient process. So if you can figure out how to make those decisions much more effectively, you can then free up the, the time to make your building special and individual. Yeah. So I, I, I don't agree that working more efficiently leads to different design outcomes. I think it actually leads to better design outcomes. I, th- I think
2: part, part of what what turns good designs into bad delivered schemes is people are overwhelmed with the number of decisions. I mean, if you want a great you know, anecdotal example of that, just watch an episode of Grand Designs. People are staggered by the number of decisions they have to make. And if they don't make them, somebody will make them by default. So you'll get some clumsy door handle on a beautiful Georgian door uh, that just does not work. And your your point on the staircase is exactly right. You know, the riser, the tread, the material, the nosing, the the height of the handrail. You know, we reinvent this every single time. Most people never go in a staircase in a commercial office building. The only time you ever go in it, if there's a fire alarm or if you're on some sort of health kick and you decide you want to walk three storeys. So we never bother putting carpets above level two in ours because no one's going to walk above more than two storeys. And if they walk between, then they're already quite an unusual person.
0: Looking at the the people element of this, Dale, you you said it yourself then, there's a lot for people to learn. Surely there's a a hell of a, a training burden, getting people skilled and not only getting them to embrace the new technology, but getting them to use it properly and getting them all online?
1: Well, I made the the leap, if you like, from the drawing board to CAD, and it was an incredibly difficult process. I think the drivers were different then. But what we're seeing now is not one transition. So that was about moving from a drawing board to CAD. What we're seeing now is multiple technologies that we're doing, and we're about to enter the period of whole-life learning and, and that, I think, is a challenge for any of the professionals in the future, understanding that there is no steady state. So moving to BIM is not about a new steady state. It's about a world of perpetual change. And even the government has acknowledged, you no, know, this whole notion of Level 3 BIM, it it will not happen. It will never happen because there are too many things changing at different paces and it's difficult predicting when certain technologies will come to fruition. So that that is the big challenge in the future, trying to second guess what are the things that can make a difference to how we design the buildings of the future. And... The other point is that we're also seeing our clients being disrupted. So if I go back to an eye hospital, the bond between the surgeon and the patient has been broken. So how do I design an operating theatre when the surgeon can be anywhere in the world? Or we've got online MOOCs, so I've now broken the bond between the educator and the student, so I don't need classrooms anymore. So we're seeing not just us being disrupted, and Alistair's pointed out about construction being disrupted, it's also our clients that are being disrupted. So it's the whole process that's getting incredibly complex. And the time frame, again, if you take uh, Moorfields and UCL project we're working on, that's five years for us to go from design to finishing that. I mean, one can only imagine how technology will change the delivery of healthcare in five years' time. I always think it's
2: worth just reminding ourselves, you can Google this and find as an image online, there's a programme for the Empire State Building. It took 18 months to build the Empire State Building. So we, I think we are constrained by our expectations of what is possible. And I think there is an opportunity to take, I, I, I would think there's probably 30 to 40% of the cost of every single project is wasted. Um, whether that's in paper-based processes, matching and passing paper invoices, every time you touch a piece of paper, you have to pay the person that touches that and to, to match the delivery ticket to the invoice and the VAT receipt. That is the legion in our industry. There are such low barriers to entry. If you've got a shovel and a wheelbarrow and you can walk and chew gum, you can be in the construction industry. And that's great because it can mop up lots of unskilled labor and make them socially useful. At the same time, the top 10 general contractors in Europe probably have less than 5% market share. So they've never been able to deploy enterprise resource planning systems like Volkswagen and GM and all of the Fortune 500 companies. So we've never been able to get at the data. The data's buried in unstructured formats, i.e. script or drawings, which now, of course, we can start to get at. But it should be possible today with a clear brief from a client to do a complete inventory of every single component that is required. And if you have a relationship with a manufacturer, and I know this from the last year of putting my own house together, I bought every nut, bolt, screw, washer, kitchen, sink, Tap. I know the prime cost of labour. I know the CIS system better than I really ought to. I shouldn't even really ever have to deal with that, in a sense. But when you realise the component cost that you can actually get, and then you see the prices you're paying as a as a developer, it's absolutely astonishing. So we pay. We think nothing of paying a thousand pounds for a door set, and yet you can do. You can get it for a hundred.
0: Uh, on your like, you know experience of last year, what are the what are the lessons, the digital lessons that you've learned? <laughs> the highs and lows. Yeah.
2: That's a great question.
0: All highs, I imagine.
2: Before we got going, we talked about people, before process, before technology. And I think it's said in software that one good software writer is worth 100 journeymen. And I can't overemphasise the the importance of having two or three really great people on any project. I mean, I think I think that... We, we, we don't fully understand how valuable a really motivated, driven individual can be and, and make a dis, a, an enormous difference to a project. We probably don't pay those people enough. We don't we don't know how to differentiate them. So I think the people thing is is, is huge. I mean, I've had the benefit of having two or three absolutely marvellous people work with me for the last year. Uh, that, I think you could easily... I know, I know from my experience of building larger buildings that there are always these... Towering characters, you know, on a big skyscraper scheme who everybody, you know, you can't imagine how we would have got the building built without them. I think the people thing is, is, is enormous. W- one of the interesting things is how we've, just a simple technology, YouTube, we've taught ourselves... People who barely speak a word of English that we can't communicate with, we can show them YouTube videos with subtitles in virtually every language. So large format tilings bought from uh, granite fiandra, three metres by one and a half metres and six mil thick. A young Romanian lad taught himself to tile with these tiles from YouTube in the space of an hour and has done five bathrooms in an enormous uh, format tile. So those kind of technologies... They can be consumed, and I think on large projects we should be taking advantage of that in a much more comprehensive fashion. People, I think, the high point of the project has been some of the great people who i have had the... Privilege, really, of employing, um, and, it, and it is an incredible privilege. In terms of products, we've tried to innovate. So we've used aerogel on the walls of a 1860 Georgian townhouse, which was absolutely freezing, and the aerogel is nine mil thick. We've used it all the way up the staircase because to get to the SAP values that we'd need, we'd need a hundred millimeters of phenolic, and we'd have lost that from the width of a stair. We've used rehau plumbing from the car industry, twenty billion. Joints made so far, not a single leak. You know, 40% of new build residential properties in the UK leak. So. If we can cut out leaks, then we'll cut out insurance premiums and all of the dislocation that goes with that. In this situation, I'm I'm in total control of this project. I'm the client. I'm the developer. I'm the contractor, and I get to make all of those decisions. In an in an ordinary situation, I would have to fight tooth and nail to get people to accept that we were going to try something different. And it's not without risks. I've used an electric underfloor heating system from a group called Lamina Heat, and we've had a we've had a a very poor experience with some of the controls related to that and overheating of floors. And people have said, why have you taken that risk? Well, you know, the potential, if you extended that into a skyscraper, you could save 70 millimetres off every single story because you wouldn't have to have the wet underfloor systems and the screeds and the time associated. Every mill of screed takes one day to dry, so you can't actually put down the timber floors for 60 to 70 days later if you've gone for a 70 mil screed whereas with this it's 0.3 of a mil but it does have its challenges so you know we, we we think we've overcome that but innovation does have a cost and it needs to have a champion and it can't just have one you've got to have a whole group of people supporting it and you've got to have the support of the money men as well,
0: well. looking on, on the commercial side of things uh, we mentioned we've mentioned it and we always get around this on pretty much every podcast we talk about procurement at some point what are the issues uh, and what needs to change
1: if, if you had asked me that question a year ago i would say that it would be very difficult to wean clients off of design and build procurement because once you have the benefit of guaranteed cost and guaranteed delivery on time why would you not want to continue doing that? But certainly what, what I've seen recently in some uh, conversations with contractors is that understanding that Alistair's already mentioned with contractors saying, well, why don't you just tell me what you want to build? just tell me what you want to build and I'll go away and build it. So I think if we can devise a procurement system that better connects the design team to the supply chain, uh, and as I said, we have someone that can really efficiently assemble a building, I think that acts as the basis of a model for a future where we can really drive innovation right from the start of the project and, and take a lot of the waste that occurs in the middle because we we produce these performance specifications that really are, at the end of the day, just adding waste to the process. Yeah, I I would say that actually having
2: a contract form, you know, when I joined the industry... In the late 80s, construction management was just getting into its stride and there was uh, Anne Minogue driving that with uh, Peter Rogers and Stuart Lipton at Stanhope and then the guys at Canary Wharf in the the second phase of Canary Wharf very much committed to... So those two seminal projects, Broadgate and Canary Wharf, really gave a big push to CM. I'm sceptical now about the way CM has evolved. I think it's rife with abuse but I think that we, we need to think about the contractual forms that can give confidence to the financiers. But we need, we need fundamentally to take a step back and say the only way we're going to reduce the risk is actually to have people who are capable of understanding it and managing it and embrace it. We kid ourselves that we get a lump sum fixed price contract, particularly if we rush that detailed design phase. We've got a fixed price a fixed set of drawings. But if if the drawings are not properly coordinated and we haven't spent enough time, we haven't dealt into the manufacturer's details sufficiently, then they're going to change and the price is going to change. So it's a chimera, this idea of the uh, allocated risk. I mean, and and you see it on projects um, that just go, they're over budget by very, very, very large margins and late by... You know, in the case of some of our large infrastructure projects, literally years.
0: What role does the the public sector and central government and local government, in fact, play in making sure that we are going in the right direction?
2: I mean, I think they could play a role, but I think they don't have the attention span uh, necessary. We eviscerate the the civil servants at our risk, I think. But, I mean, I, I don't understand why in this country the largest... Client for the construction industry is not utterly professional. Uh, the, the top school in, in France is the Academy, the, the, the Ecole Nationale d'Administration, so the NAACS. They produce these highly qualified, very well paid people who chop and change between the civil service and the large French companies. Uh, but the second most prestigious school in France is the Ecole Nationale de Pont des Chaussées, so the National School of Roads and Bridges. It's a Napoleonic thing that they say when we build we want to have people clearly client side not consultants not 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 project managers but utterly affiliated to the client side and they produce hundreds of highly qualified people year in year out and and they do permeate through into the uh, the wider industry but the french deliver railways to Strasbourg a fraction of the price that we're proposing to, to deliver HS2. I'd like to see a professionalisation in summary of, of the client side of the UK uh, government.
1: But coming back to an innovation point I mean certainly what we've seen is that clients that are able to make uh, decisions on their own can be more receptive to some of our innovation around what we do. What we tend to find is that some public sector clients, they they want innovation, but then they want case studies that demonstrate that. And again, that's a chicken and egg. Someone has to be the first to to use new innovation. And so how, how do you break that cycle? How do you give the public sector the confidence that some of the ideas will work? Because you will never cross the chasm unless you can break that. Yeah, you can't take baby steps when you've got to jump a chasm.
0: Correct. Well, so we're, we're talking to pilot projects. Public sector taking some of the risk, essentially, and getting things off the ground.
2: It was uh, President Roosevelt in the uh, 30s that said the job of government is constant and bold innovation, and we have to accept that there are going to be failings. I've tried a heating system in my own house, which has burnt one of my floors. Now, I'm going to replace it, I'm going to fix it, but you can't try something new and expect it always to go right first time. And the the role of government should be to showcase. I don't understand, for example, why the future uh, schools programme I'd run an architectural competition and I would have got the best architects in the world to compete for it and I would have selected a design and I would have built a factory to produce hundreds of those up and down the country. So instead of schools' budgets blown and, I don't know, it was 20 billion and I think they built 20 schools, it was it was some ludicrous number. We should be innovating and using the, the, the exchequer money to drive this innovation and to drive Where we have standardized, why is it, for example, when the London School Act came in in the 1890s, we built the same school all over London. Does anybody complain that the same school in Maidervale is the one in Highgate is the same as the one in Hackney? No one cares. They just want a good place for their kids to be educated. We should be doing the same thing, and we should get fantastic architects to work on it. You know, it should be the Richard Rogers and the Fosters and the Allies and Morrison and all the rest of them. But open it to international competition as well. Let's get some great new ideas. But let's have a brief for what a school needs to be able to do, and and to have f- that future proofing, so that it can be changed to reflect new new thoughts in education. So though I, I think that the government. I mean obviously the government is consumed with Brexit we can't do anything else we can't do anything at all it seems to me so i, I don't see i'm not optimistic that this is going to be taken up as as a manifesto pledge uh, but
1: but having said that there there are a number of routes to getting funding from government for innovation so and, and i think that probably has been working well so so i, I guess the point is how do you quicker Go to, from these proof of concept kind of ideas, and then provide some kind of portal for for the no, let's say the the bigger public sector client environment to give them the the new tools that can. Someone is rubber-stamped, that these are good to go. What does the future hold?
0: What's on the horizon? What's what, what excites you? Or what, what are you maybe what are you worried about? I don't know.
1: I think the a couple of things for, for me is one is the increased use of robotics, so I spoke earlier on about needing bigger products. So what really excites me is having uh, 24-7 factories that are making the product of the future. And I see that key to improving the productivity into the future. So, so one is really robotics. I think robotics on site will take a bit longer because the, the, the challenges of managing robots on site uh, are, are different to managing them in a factory where they can be bolted down. So that's one. And I think the second is around AI As you know, we've got our own... uh AI kind of tool uh, which we use for anomaly detection I think there is not enough machine readable content just now to really drive AI in the construction sector so it's, it's, it's really playing out in the legal sector because they have lots and lots of contents that they can an AI tool can consume so I, I think it's even as ACOM we, we cannot aggregate enough uh, data to really drive some of the intelligence that machine learning tools need But I think in five years' time, I think we'll see AI really starting to shape how we do it. It it may not necessarily inform how we design because at the end of the day, I mean, obviously in the tech world, people talk about, you know, move fast and, and break things well we obviously can't do that design buildings we have to get it right first time so obviously we can cautiously move into these new tools into the future but I think there's lots of exciting things that we'll be seeing I think the next 10 years are going to be incredibly exciting I think we'll probably see the biggest shift in how we make buildings in the last 100 years in that decade so I think we're going to see lots of new things happening which is very exciting. The question then is what am I excited
2: about for the future? Mm. Is that Yeah. I think we're going to face a very challenging decade. I think AI is going to be deployed if if you if you're a FTSE 100 chief executive today and you're not looking at how a- you can use AI to replace people then you're going to be replaced. And I think we're going to see massive dislocation in truck driving, and any form of driving, frankly. I think autonomous vehicles will be safer than human-driven vehicles in a matter of a couple of years. I think the legislation will lag, but if it, inevitably, uh, if you're involved in driving in some way, that's going to be a massive dislocation. I think the numbers of cars actually on the road, c- we could see decreasing, but much more use of the cars we've got. And I think the impact on our cities... I think could be enormous because we've built a whole system of roads predicated on a certain number of vehicles when actually those numbers of vehicles I think could be halved in the next 15 years, but just much more use of the vehicle's fleet and more intensive use. If you think of a typical car, you probably use it for 3 or 4% of its life, but with an Uber, it's being used... No, 60 70% of its life. So I think we're going I'm I'm excited to see how we can shape cities to be more human friendly. Uh we can take advantage of the fact that we we there are less cars to maybe make better use, land use, which as a developer, you know, our raw material is land, and uh, they're not making any more of it. But this might be an opportunity to to reconsider that. I would like to think that when we get through the present uh, obsession in politics, that we could focus politicians back on having a wider perspective on the way in which we go about delivering. So, for example, in a capitalist society, we rely on people consuming. If people can't set up a home, they don't have a family. If they don't have children, they don't buy, you know, the toys and the pram and the carpet and they don't need an extension. So I think our failure to deliver housing is is going to have a very profound impact on our ability to have a consumer-led economy going forward. And I think we have to fix this. I think it's a gigantic crisis now. I know for a fact there are people who are living 30 to 60 to a house in Collindale uh, who work on our sites. And, and people, I think we're insulated from... These folks, they, they come and go, they hotbed, and I think it's a disaster for the country. So I'd like to think that we would take a much more holistic view. If we, if we can reduce the cost of building, uh, we get more bang for our buck, I think we should be looking at building a lot more residential. And if it's largely the same... Uh, and it can be factory produced and that can take the cost down, then so be it. I don't think that we worry too much about rows and rows of Georgian houses. If we can get a decent design, why do we have to worry about rows and rows of similar houses here? And I think also the building industry can accommodate an awful lot of people who could be displaced from other industries because the barriers to entry are relatively low. We could take much more advantage of, you know, the, the examples like YouTube that I've given to to you know we should be looking at recasting the way we train people does it really take 3 years to train someone if you, you can sit there and watch the world's greatest Tyler on YouTube. Yeah. So all
1: of those things, I think, are opportunities for us. And certainly what I see is a lot of the the scenarios where we talk about AI, it's, it's not actually AI, it's kind of rules-based design. So I think before AI there will be rules-based design. But there's a lot that we need to do. So going back to the BIM conversation, I think BIM has delivered fantastic geometry, but I think we're only dipping our toes into the data possibilities, smart sensors, IOT and a whole ton of other things are going to drive changes in the future. So I think it's the data that we're really going to start to leverage Mm -hmm. and it's how we get those data dictionaries and so on set up to get the right data to make better decisions and of course the one thing that we haven't touched on yet is is trying to make our buildings more resilient into the future zero carbon and so on and how uh, much the the better built environment can help that whole climate change effort that's been pushed. I think also you know just to to go back to the you know the guys who,
2: who do put the the buildings together oftentimes you've got folks on site who Want to get on but they, they and, and you've got materials that need to be fitted and people that can fit them but the two are not brought together because of you know a certain uh casualization of labor force Um but with a mobile phone with an app that can say right there's an opportunity to put a bathroom cabinet in now and as soon as you've put that in if you're a th- three-star worker you'll get paid a w- two weeks later if you're a four-star worker you get paid a week later if you're a five-star worker you get paid immediately and you get a premium. And that will encourage people and put an economic incentive to upskill themselves, uh, to become a trusted worker, a bit like an Uber rating. I think those type of apps, I'm working again with the Canadian outfit Kidspace. They've got that working now on 18 projects in Vancouver hundreds and hundreds of kitchens being installed with a reduction of about 50 percent in supervision because nobody ever put a bathroom cabinet in better by having someone stand on their shoulder and saying you don't want to do it like that so i think having having these mobile apps we we're only scratching the surface of what they can deliver and i think that they are a plug-in to the whole piece where the client sits there with the lead designer defining the brief I think much more time spent up front would save an enormous amount of wastage and, and, the, the, and the tools now give us the ability to do that. And The first person who really breaks out and says let's, let's re-engineer this process, let's create an assembler, let's promulgate this, what this te- technology can actually do. I think there is a significant market opportunity for such a, an organisation, call it an assembler, call it a recast general contractor.
1: But you, you make a good point there because it's not just about the lead designer sitting with a client on one project. Certainly what we see is more program approaches. Because yeah. well, this I, is where
2: yeah. government has a role. Yeah.
1: Correct. And certainly I think anyone involved in the built environment industry, whether it's an architect, an engineer or a contractor, we're all hardwired to think about the single project. We all focus on one project. We finish it. We move on, we recover, we move on, we move on to the next one. Sometimes we don't Uh, recover. And I think certainly what we see is trying to move to programme thinking is really, really tough. It's really tough to get that single project DNA out of people's kind of uh, system. And certainly that, that's something that I would see is, is going to really drive change into the future. If we can break that bond with some of our clients to think more about programmes and how we can work more efficiently across five projects, not one, I think that will start to really drive change. Yeah, to me, that
2: is undoubtedly the sphere of government. We keep coming back to it. But government should be uh, promoting this idea. And we've got hundreds of different... Uh, societal needs, where it would be a housing, hospitals, uh, Sure Start, bridges, roads, you know, there's so much potential for repetition and for learning. And then, you know, if you, if you actually think about uh, the iPhone and think about the technologies involved with it, virtually all of those technologies that go into an iPhone were promoted and developed by government spending in the U.S., whether it's the silicon chip for the space system or DARPA doing uh, the gyroscopes and the accelerometer, the touchscreen, all of these things came from government. Spent Apple famously, um, Steve Jobs complained to Bill Gates that uh, he'd stolen his operating system. He said, that, yeah, but you stole it from Xerox. And Xerox got money from DARPA for the defence research group in, in America. So I think there is a role for government in promoting things that will have massive paybacks but multiples multiple times of what they actually invest but it's going to need some smart smart folks in government yeah.
0: conscious of time but before we, we we start to to wrap things up I'd like to ask you both the same question what do you hope that your own personal digital legacy will be well I'm Somewhere
2: deep down in my CV, you'll see that I was a chief executive, effectively a founder of a company called A-Site, which back in the 1999, 2000, we tried to create a procurement hub, which allowed matching and passing of invoices. So I've, I've had a go at this. I've I spent two or three years uh, at A-Site getting it up to break even, and they, what, well, I guess 17, 18 years later, they're 300 odd people, mostly in India, writing software. And they, I think, making a profit now of just in excess of a million pounds. They're turning over about five. And we thought this was going to be enormous. We thought the market opportunity was enormous. Um, I'd like to think that if I was to get involved in pushing the efficiency of the industry forward with the ubiquity now of the tools, you know, primarily the mobile phone and 5G I'd like to think that I would have a legacy that I'd made some sort of industry-level change, but it's probably just hubris.
0: <laughs> Dale?
1: Well, there, there's a, a great section in the book the, the Future of the Professions" by Richard and Daniel Susskind, where, where they really talk about how our generation got the tough kick in moving from an analogue world and I mean that in the kind of broadest sense into a digital world so I guess I would just love to be known as one of the kind of people that helped to make that transition into a wholly digital world and and again they they say in the book that once we get there it will get easier so making life easier for future generations allowing them to then tackle the, the problems that they will have probably around things like climate change. Well, I think that would be fantastic to well, be known no for we that. we know we've failed if you become a czar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, on that note, I think we're going to end things. Dale, Alistair, thank you very much for, for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe, leave a review uh, and, of course, tell your friends. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.